0: Well, let's go back to the book of Ecclesiastes this morning. Um, we're back in the book. Chapter nine is our text, uh, looking specifically at verses one through 18, the whole of chapter nine this morning. And, uh, after today, we're only going to have three chapters to go in the book. So we're, we're, we're coming to an end, uh, of our study of this book. Here in chapter 9, we, uh, we start to get the feel that the writer of the book is, is beginning to round one final turn and start heading for the finish line. As we've said over the last couple of months, the focus of this book is, is upon uh, the right way to live in a world that has gone seriously wrong the right way to live in a world that's gone wrong, how to live the life our Creator wants us to live um, and commands us to live, by the way, in a world that is deeply fallen and broken and in need of redemption. Um, if you remember, the title I gave this series was Fearing God in a Fallen World. I think that's a, a simple summary of the book of Ecclesiastes. But here... In chapter 9, it's almost as if the, the preacher uh, wants us to take a moment and put some things together here. Uh, it's like he's, he's, he's asking us to kind of pause with him for a moment to think about some of the major themes that, has, that have filled his teaching to this point. If you look at verse 1 here in chapter 9, he says, But all this, all this, all the things that have been said, I laid to heart, examining it all. Specifically, I think it's as if he's uh, asking us, inviting us to kind of sharpen our thinking a bit as it concerns what we can rightfully expect from life. Putting together the things he said to this point, what exactly can you expect from this life. Um, expectations are important. Expectations, uh, in many ways, determine how you respond to circumstances. And I think here he's wanting us to, to get clear, to gain some clarity about what we can expect from life. What can we expect? Well, let's read what he says first, and then uh, we'll consider two things from what he says. First, what can we expect from life, and then two, uh, what should we do in response to these things? so let's read Ecclesiastes nine. I just want to read verses one through twelve we'll we'll read uh, we'll leave out the last few verses there. I think one through twelve give us the big idea here in this chapter. so let's read it together and then we'll we'll dive into it Verse one, but all this I laid to heart, examining it all. How the righteous and the wise and their deeds are in the hand of God. Whether it is love or hate, man does not know. Both are before him. It is the same for all, since the same event happens to the righteous and the wicked, to the good and the evil, to the clean and the unclean, to him who sacrifices and him who does not sacrifice. As the good one is, so is the sinner, and he who swears is as he who shuns an oath. This is an evil in all that is done under the sun, that the same event happens to all. Also the hearts of the children of man are full of evil, and madness is in their hearts while they live, and after that they go to the dead. But he who is joined with all the living has hope, for a living dog is better than a dead lion. For the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing, and they have no more reward for the memory of them is forgotten. Their love and their hate and their envy have already perished, and forever they have no more share in all that is done under the sun. Go, eat your bread with joy, and drink your wine with a merry heart, for God has already approved what you do. Let your garments always be white. Let not oil be lacking on your head. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love all the days of your life, your vain life that he has given you under the sun, because that is your portion in life and in your toil at which you toil under the sun. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might, for there is no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol that's the grave to which you are going. Again I saw that under the sun the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor the bread, nor bread to the wise, nor riches to the intelligent, nor favor to those with knowledge, but time and chance happen to them all. For man does not know his time, like fish that are taken in an evil net and like birds that are caught in a snare. So the children of man are snared at an evil time when it suddenly falls upon them. If you, uh, if you would for a moment, just indulge me for, for a moment here. I want you to think of your favorite Disney movie. Um, and if you're not a Disney fan, I guess you can sit this one out and, you know, that's fine. Think of your favorite Disney movie. Okay. What is it? Now think about how that movie ends. How does that movie end? How does every Disney movie end? Uh, it ends with some sort of really happy ending, right? Um, sure, there's some struggle along the way, like Bambi's mom gets shot by a hunter, and Cinderella gets locked up in the attic after she goes to the ball and meets the prince, and Mufasa is killed by Scar, and Pinocchio is kidnapped and turns into a donkey after going to Pleasure Island, and gets swallowed by Monstro the Whale, and Princess Aurora is cursed, and she falls to until her prince can get to her and, and kiss her. Um, Han Solo is lightsabered by Kylo Ren. Yeah, Star Wars is Disney. Thanos snaps his finger and kills half of the world's population. Marvel is Disney, too. Uh, Disney is no stranger to struggle, right? To intrigue, to tension, and to conflict. All those things are necessary to every good story. Uh, but eventually, in every Disney movie, things turn around, good triumphs over, over evil, and we get some sort of happy ending, right? Bambi gets married and has some kids and becomes the new great prince of the forest. Uh, the prince finds Cinderella and puts on her glass slipper. Simba becomes the new king. Pinocchio becomes a real boy. Aurora is wakened by true love's kiss. Ray defeats Emperor uh, Palpatine or Palpatine, however you pronounce it. Thanos is defeated. Uh, the Avengers avenge and so on, right? Conflicts are settled. Good wins. Evil loses. Heroes prevail. Uh, tensions are resolved and all is well with the world again. Is that what we can expect from life? Is that what we can expect? The answer in Ecclesiastes 9 is, not at all. Not at all. Life is not a Disney movie. Life is not a Disney movie. So what can we expect from this life? The preacher has been extremely honest with us throughout the book. He's been brutally honest with us. And he doesn't change his tone here in chapter 9. If we put together much of what he's said so far, he tells us that we can expect the following from this life. And, and just a heads up, Disney would never hire this guy uh, to, to come up with a movie idea for them. What can we expect from life? Number one, we can expect the full range of human experience. The full range of human experience, meaning... Good and bad, ups and downs, pleasure and pain, love and hate. That's the language he uses here in verse 1. And everything in between. If you look at verse 1 again, But all this I laid to heart, examining it all, how the righteous and the wise and their deeds are in the hand of God, whether it is love or hate. That is, from other people, from the world, from this life, whether it is love or hate, man does not know. He doesn't know what's coming. Both are before him, meaning both are a reality for him. Both are possible. This is one of his chief conclusions after, after all the things that he's considered to this point. No one is guaranteed only happiness or pleasure or prosperity in this life. No one. And that includes those who are in a right relationship with God, those who are called the righteous here, the wise, even for them, only happiness is no guarantee. Wisdom, righteousness, obedience to God, sincere worship of God, a true and growing love for God, a sincere affection for Jesus Christ does not exempt you from experiencing both good days and bad days like everyone else on this earth both of these things are before us all they they are both a part of all of our lives no one gets out of this he further explains as he goes on verses 2 and 3 what he what he's saying what he's what he's getting at in verse 1 verse 2 he says it is the same for all it's the same for all since the same event happens to and and notice the distinctions here the same thing happens to the righteous, those who are right with God and are living for him, and the wicked, those who are living in all-out disregard uh, for God and, and rebellion against God. Same thing happens to the righteous and the wicked. He goes on. Same thing happens to the good, those who are seeking to do good before God, and the evil, those who have no concern about what God says is good. Likewise, the clean uh that's those who are purified for worship by way of blood sacrifice those whose sins are atoned for and forgiven by god and the unclean those who are still uh stained before god because of their sin same same thing happens to the clean and the unclean he keeps going to him who sacrifices that's the one who worship God, worships God as he calls us to, and the one who does not sacrifice, the one who refuses to worship God as he calls us to. As is the good, he says, so is the sinner. He who swears, the one who makes commitments of obedience to God, is as he who shuns an oath, those who break their commitments to God. Same thing happens to all these people. So he says, verse three, this is an evil in all that is done under the sun, and by evil he's talking about a perplexing, troubling reality in life, not that it's wrong, not that it's you know wicked of God, evil of God, it's just a perplexing, troubling reality in this world that the same event happens to all. see what he's saying uh in this life it it goes." For the one who is in God's family by grace, the way it goes for everyone else in the world. The same event happens to them all. The same event happens to us all. And as we'll come back to in a moment, the same event is death, right? That's the same event. But if death comes to us all, so does dying, so does the process of dying. And dying can knock on your door in a myriad of ways. So not just death, but dying, suffering, pain, trouble comes to us all. Those who are right with God by grace through faith in Jesus, speaking in New Testament terms here, and those who are not right with God because they have yet to trust in Jesus by faith. What's he saying? In life, in life, Regardless of who you are, even if you are a sincere worshiper of God and follower of Christ, you can expect the full range of life's experiences. Now that's important for all kinds of reasons. But I think if for no other reason than that a lot of God's people, a lot of Christians, maybe you, believe, albeit somewhat, Unconsciously, in many cases, uh, a lot of Christians believe in something a little bit more like karma than the Bible. I think a lot of us have this idea and and for all sorts of reasons, I suspect some are cultural, some are just straight sinful, some are theological um a lot of us have this idea that if we try our best and obey God and keep his commandments and stay faithful to him, at least generally so, and give effort uh, to the Christian life, that things ought to turn out pretty well for us in this life. Almost as if God owes us pleasing circumstances in return for our obedience. If I obey God, God will give me the job that I want and a happy marriage and success at school and work and a nice paycheck and a nice house and a white picket fence or whatever, you know, the equivalent of a white picket fence is in your world. In Christian circles, there's a name for that kind of thinking and it's called the prosperity gospel. Prosperity gospel: If I honor God, God will honor me and reward me in this life with material, tangible pleasures. And there's there's a there's an all-out demonic uh, version of that sort of gospel, which is no gospel at all. The the one that you encounter on on TV with dramatic preachers telling you to sow your seed and give them money and all those kinds of things and. Uh, have enough faith to get your miracle and all those all those sorts of messages that's just a straight up demonic false gospel, but there's a much subtler version of that sort of thinking all over the church among people who believe the real gospel, the true gospel and and the idea is that if we honor God, God will give us better circumstances in this life in the here and now. Um, and so when, when better circumstances don't come, or when suffering or tragedy or, you know, difficulty of some kind, uh, comes into our lives unexpectedly, we think that it must be because it could only be because we've done something wrong or God is doing something wrong. When in reality, God tells us all over the Bible through many voices, many authors, in many books, in many ways, that that's not how it works in his world. That's just not how it goes. That's not how he set things up. Why not? Well, for starters, we deserve nothing good from God. We don't deserve anything good from God. Our best deeds, our best deeds deserve wrath from God because they're riddled with sin. But God also tells us that He does great, purifying, sanctifying good in the lives of His people through suffering, and that He disciplines those He loves with pain. And beyond that, God, God can't be manipulated like this. He does as He pleases. He gives us what He sees fit to give us. He does what He wants. He's not some... Magic genie, just rub his belly and he'll give you the the pleasures of your heart. That's not how this works in his world. Living a life of obedience in this life has no guarantee that everything is going to go well for you, in this life at least. That's why he says, if you go down, skip down to verse 11, Again I saw that under the sun the race is not to the swift, to the fastest among us, nor to the, the battle to the strong, nor bread to the wise, nor riches to the intelligent, nor favor to those with knowledge, but time and chance, by chance he's just talking about seemingly random occurrences, good and bad, happen to them all. Happen to us all. So what can you expect from this life? Oh, you know, just about anything, rightly, just about anything. That's first, here. You can expect the full range of life's experiences. Then second, you can also expect disappointments despite your best intentions and efforts. We can expect disappointments despite our best intentions and efforts. If you skip down to verses 13 uh, through 16, um, we see there, see where the the preacher tells this story of a little city that was being attacked by a powerful king and his troops with great weapons. But in that city, this is verse fifteen, was a was a poor wise man who came up with a plan to save the city. And his plan proves successful. Now, what happens? He wants us to 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 see what happened to that poor, wise man, what happened to him. You'd expect him to be honored by the people and have his name written down in the history books and for streets to be named after him and uh, you know celebrations in his honor to be had. But that's not how it works all the time in this life. In fact, the preacher says, yet no one remembered that poor man. Despite his best efforts, despite his wisdom, Despite saving lives, he dies forgotten and unrecognized. Which is a little anticlimactic, isn't it? Well, then look at how the preacher concludes this chapter. Look at verse 18. He says, Wisdom is better than weapons of war. I mean, that's pretty valuable. Wisdom is better than weapons of war. But one sinner... Destroys much good. He continues the thought in in chapter ten and verse one. You know that one sinner, one polluted sinner, can destroy much good. He, where he uses this proverb: "Dead flies make the perfumer's ointment give off a stench." So a little folly outweighs wisdom and honor. What's the idea? Uh, despite our best efforts. Despite the best efforts and intentions of the wise, evil usually messes up what we do in some way. In a sense, he's basically just saying the same thing as he did before here as well. Don't expect for a life of wisdom to be rewarded in this life with success and prosperity and recognition and honor. Don't expect that. In this fallen world, where evil runs rampant, the sincere pursuit of wisdom and obedience, the sincere desire and, and effort to honor God isn't going to create heaven on earth for you or for anyone else. It's not going to save the world. Your wisdom, your efforts, whether your world or anyone else's, even if you try hard to be wise and obedient and submissive to God, life is going to be full of anti-climax and disappointment. So you can expect disappointments despite your best efforts and intentions. And then third, we can expect to die. We can expect to die. Now, as we mentioned, this, this thread runs through the chapter. It's a major focus of chapter nine once again, and this is not the first time he's brought up the reality of death. Um, he's just hammering it home. Look at verses 2 and 3. It is the same for all since the same event happens to the righteous and the wicked. That same event again is death. This is an evil. It's a perplexing tragedy. in all that is done under the sun, that the same event happens to all. Verse 10, whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might. For there is no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol to which you are going. Certainty there, it's going to happen. Verses 11 and 12, Again I saw that under the sun the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor bread to the wise, nor riches to the intelligent, nor favor to those with knowledge, but time and chance happen to them all. For man does not know his time. When, when his time is up, I think is what he's saying. Like fish that are taken in an evil net and like birds that are caught in a snare. so the children of man are snared at an evil time, a perplexing time, troubling time, when it suddenly comes upon them. You don't know when you're going to die, but you know you're going to die. That's what he's saying. You don't know when it's going to happen, how it's going to happen, what the circumstances will be surrounding your death, but you know that death is will come of all the things we do not know when it comes to the twists and turns of that this life will take for us we know this with certainty that one out of one die that life has a hundred percent mortality rate try as hard as we all do to ignore the fact that life is short you're not going to be able to ignore that forever we can expect to die the healthiest among us will die the the strongest strongest among us will die the fastest among us will die the most intelligent among us will die the best educated among us will die the most professionally successful among us will die we can and should expect to die now briefly here you know i, I just want to try to connect some biblical theological dots for us to see what the writer of Ecclesiastes, and particularly the preacher here, is affirming in these sort of dire, you know, sobering, bleak expectations. He's not just some uncurable pessimist. He's a theologian. He's a wise theologian. He's really driving home some very important theological realities. Things like sin is real. And it really has corrupted the whole world and the wages of sin really is death death comes to all because sin has spread to all when god said to adam and eve that in the day that you shall eat of the fr- in the day that you eat of the fruit you shall surely die when he said that he meant it the preacher is also affirming here that the curse of sin and the consequences of sin cannot be reversed by even the best and brightest of humans we're not going to save this world. We're not going to bring heaven on earth. We're not going to usher in the kingdom of God. None of that. The consequences of sin cannot be removed from this earth by strong, fast, sincere, you know, intelligent sinners. They are part of the problem facing this world. They are not the solution. The solution to all the world's problem problems is not smart sinners. The solution is Christ and Christ alone. Only he can fix this place. Only he can, can uh, execute and deliver perfect justice. Only he can rid the world of sin and death. Only him and not us. And then also the, the preacher here is affirming that this life, this world, is not what we were created for. That's what all this brokenness, all this bleakness is supposed to teach us, that we were made for another world. We were made for an eternal world. We were made for a new world where God and man dwell together in righteousness and peace. Don't get too comfortable here. Though he doesn't dig into these realities in great depth throughout this book, they are the realities that give him the strength and resolve to face the facts of suffering and disappointment and dying and death itself. What can you expect in this life? You can expect the full range of human experience. You can expect disappointment despite your best intentions, and you can expect to die. Now, what do we do with all that? What do we do in response? Again, as I said last week, the encouragement that he gives here is completely counterintuitive. Um, what should we do in response to the, to the unpredictability of life? Despair? Should we despair? Should we lose hope? Should we be sad? Should we mope? Should we rage? Should we give up? No. First he says, we should enjoy what God has given us. We should enjoy what God has given to us. Interestingly enough, the, the center of this chapter is verses four through ten which focuses on the goodness of being alive in God's world. Everyone is headed to the grave. That's verses 2 and 3. So, verses 4 through 10, we should not miss the goodness of simply being alive. Look at what he says in verse 4. A living dog is better than a dead lion. living dog, low on the totem pole, is better than a dead, powerful lion. Would you rather be alive and have the chance to live rightly in this world, have the chance to get right with God or be dead, having gone through life like a lion, thinking you're all-powerful and all-important only to find out that you're not? The dead have had their shot in life. He says that in verse six they and, and it's long gone. they don't get a second chance. He says in verse six they have no more share in all that is done under the sun. No more share. They get no more chance. There's goodness in the simple fact of being alive in God's world. If you're breathing right now, take a breath, right? That's God's goodness to you. That's God's goodness. So he says in verse 7 through verse 10, Go eat your bread, enjoy. And drink your wine with a merry heart, for God has already approved what you do, meaning he approves of you enjoying the good physical pleasures of life that come from his hand. Let your garments he says, verse eight always be white, let not oil be lacking on your head. That just means take a take a posture of celebration and joy celebrate God's goodness to you. verse nine, enjoy life with the wife whom you love. If you're married, enjoy the life God has given you and your spouse to go through together. And notice, notice, enjoy it. Don't waste your time trying to change the other person, trying to fix the other person. Just do what you can to enjoy the life God has given you together. And do it all the days of your life, your vain life. That he has given you under the sun, because that is your portion in life and in your toil at which you toil under the sun. Whatever your hand finds to do, verse 10, and there he's speaking of work, labor, do it with your might. Why? For there's no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol in the grave to which you are going. What's he saying? What's he saying? He's saying that there are marks of God's goodness all over your life to be enjoyed if you'll open your eyes to them is life hard yeah it's hard is it disappointing it is absolutely disappointing it's tragic at times it's troubling it's painful it's challenging it's all of these things but god is in it is what he's saying god is in it and god is good and his goodness is shown in ways that we so often take for granted his goodness is shown to us in simple things, simple pleasures, food and drink and companionship and marriage and work, things we often look past for enjoyment, for joy. Now, how can you enjoy these things if you know that, that all you can expect from life are things like suffering and disappointment and death? How does that work? How do those two things go together? Well, you can enjoy these things only when you know that you've done nothing to deserve them. You can enjoy them when you see them as the free overflow of God's goodness and grace to you. You can enjoy things like these when you recognize that you deserve no pleasure from the hand of God whatsoever, that all you deserve from him is suffering and death. When you see death as what you deserve, suffering is what you deserve deserve. Disappointment is what you've earned. Then you can receive food and many other things in this life as God's gracious gifts. Enjoy what good God has given you. Enjoy the good God has given you. Look around, see what he's given you and enjoy it. Number two, how should we respond? We should also rejoice that our lives are in God's hands. If you go back to verse 1, the preacher says something so important there, where he says, But all this I laid to heart, examining it all, how the righteous and the wise and their deeds are in the hand of God. The righteous and the wise and their deeds are in the hand of God. Um, Matthew Henry, the Puritan commentator, he, he has a great paragraph. In his commentary on this on this passage he says god's redeemed people are under his special protection and guidance all their affairs are managed by him for their good all their wise and righteous actions are in his hand to be recompensed in the other world though not in this they seem as if they were given up into the hand of their enemies but it is not so men have no power against them, but what is given them from above. The events that affect them do not come to pass by chance, but all according to the will and counsel of God, which will turn that to be for them, which seem to be most against them. Our lives are in God's hand, even as time and chance, you know, as he mentions in verse 11, seemingly random struggles and challenges and Calamities happen to us all. We rest securely in God, the the good, faithful, preserving hand of God. You might remember Jesus' words. This may ring a bell. In Matthew ten, uh, verses twenty seven through thirty, where Jesus says of His people, "My sheep hear My voice, and I know them, and they follow Me." And then He says, "I give them eternal life, and they will never perish." and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Though life is unpredictable from our vantage point, though hardship may very well come, and though death will come for each of us, Rather unexpectedly, for some of us, God will keep us safe to the end and through eternity because we are in his hand if we are in Christ. Then third, what else should we do? We should also make the most of the time we have. Make the most of the time we have. That's the message of verses 7 through 10. Make the most of this life. Live it like it was meant to be lived. Learn your place before God and, and spend your life enjoying and glorifying and serving Him. Verse 10, whatever your hand finds to do, whatever you do, do it with your might. Do it with your might. Now, what else are we are we called to do with our might in Scripture? Um, I think of Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 and 5. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. Could he be saying here simply, whatever you do, do it all in love for God and to the glory of God? That's how we were meant to live, not for ourselves, not for our own glory, not for our own immediate pleasure, but for God in submission to God out of loyalty to Him, in love for Him, and in obedience to Him. If you're, if you're breathing right now, it's God giving you your chance to get right with Him and live like you were meant to live. That's what it means to make the most of this life. Making the most of, of, of life is not about bucket lists and vacations and cool experiences and fun events and vacation homes and all that kind of stuff. It's about repenting of our sins, looking to God for mercy, receiving the means by which our sins can be forgiven, which, which is the, the righteous blood of Jesus Christ who died for sinners on the cross. It's about turning away from a life of sin, turning to God and turning to His Son, Jesus, in faith, and then living until we die for His glory and His fame, which, as ironic as it may seem, is the path to true joy. That's what it means to make the most of this life. Friends, our time on this earth is short. It's very short. If you're watching Today, Watching this today and you, you haven't yet turned from your life of sin and trust in, trusted in Christ as Lord, I urge you, don't wait till tomorrow to do it. Do it today and be saved. And then start living your life for something infinitely bigger and more important and more precious than yourself and your own life. Let's all learn to make the most of the time we have for the glory of God. So that's third. And then finally, how should we respond to the expectations God gives us for this life here in this chapter? Number four, and I know this is kind of long, um, but we should know that the value of living rightly in this life will not be fully realized until the life to come. need to know that. The value of living wisely, living rightly in this life won't be seen and felt and experienced fully until the life to come. The real payoff of submitting to God, of seeking to live skillfully, wisely for him, of obeying his commands, of enjoying whatever he sees fit to, to give us and honor him with the time that we have. The real payoff of all of that comes not now, but later on the other side of the grave. In the next life, in the world to come. Where do we see that in this passage? Do we get a hint of that here? I think we do. I think we see it in statements like verse 16. Wisdom is better than might. Wisdom is better than might. Living skillfully for the glory of God is better than being strong and being powerful and being influential in this world. Now think about that. How could that be the case if the same thing happens to us all? We live, we suffer, we face disappointment, and then we die. Well, he's got to be thinking beyond the grave here, doesn't he? In fact, he is throughout this whole book. He's thinking beyond the grave. It's better. Wisdom is better because it prepares you for God's new world that is yet to come. Living as God calls us to in this life is better than all the prosperity this world has to offer because it, it, it wets our appetite for the new and better world where sin is banished, death is defeated, and God and man dwell together forever. Live wisely now. By God's grace, in Christ alone, so that you might prosper, not today, but in the life to come, in the life to come. Store up for yourself, as Jesus says, treasures not on earth, but in heaven. So although life is, is utterly unpredictable and uncontrollable from our perspective, I think what we need to see here, one of the important things, is that hope is by no means lost. There's still hope here. What can you expect from this life? Uh, you can expect it to be crazy and full of everything and and that, that it's going to be short. He's going to get there in chapter 12. He's going to start reminding us that there's a day coming when your body doesn't work as well and your bones start to hurt and things start to Feel uncomfortable. That's that's the reminder that you're you're headed to the grave. Life is short, but you can also expect that God will be faithful and that God will be good. That your life is in His hand. And one of the great lessons of life is in learning that the faithfulness and the goodness of God is the is the th- Stuff that we really need in this life You don't need strength You don't need stuff You don't need power You just need to be in God's hand And if you're in God's hand you have What you need Let's pray Father we acknowledge that we are not the rulers of this world We are not the masters of our fate. We don't rule over a square inch of this planet. This is your world, not ours. We're here to represent you. We're here to point people to you. We're here to reflect your goodness, but this is your world, not ours. And our lives are yours to do with whatever you see fit to do. Lord, the fact that we are in your hand is both um, it requires us to, to humble ourselves before you, to acknowledge that we're not in charge here, but it also brings us joy. Lord, it brings us joy to know that, that you are ruling over our lives, that you are giving us what we need, that you in your own wisdom bring circumstances into our lives, even difficult ones, for our good and for your glory and for our eternal joy. Lord, we thank you for your word that gives us right expectations for what we can live what we can look for in this life. We thank you for your word that helps us navigate this bumpy treacherous terrain and we pray for grace that you'd help us live in this world, in all its disappointments, all its pain, and even as we face the prospect of death, help us to do it with joy and obedience and humility. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.